Nehemiah chapter 6 and chapter 7 was my uh, remit for this morning. Two chapters from this uh, amazing book. And uh, I try to take a wide picture first of all. Sometimes it does occur to me that the events that take place in the Bible uh, happen on an incredibly small stage. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. And yet they apparently have an incredibly large importance. We do live, do we not, in a tiny planet uh, revolving around a small star uh, in a medium-sized galaxy in a universe packed full of billions of galaxies. Uh, compared with the universe, our planet is a, is a microdot. And on this little planet is a small nation hanging on to the eastern seaboard of the Mediterranean Sea 500 years before the birth of Jesus. And that nation was a complete mess. It had been hopelessly divided centuries before. Ten tribes split off and went north. Eventually they virtually disappeared as a kingdom because of foreign invasion and the dispersion of its population. The two tribes that remained in the south they too suffered foreign invasion and exile. Their little city was destroyed by powerful armies and the leading citizens were shipped off, thousands of them, to a foreign land. And this was supposed to be the kingdom of God on earth. The God who made the universe, this is his kingdom. It's about the size of Yorkshire, although I hesitate to use that word, about the size of Yorkshire, its capital city was ruined. Its temple was a demolition site and the walls were blackened heaps around what used to be the perimeter. It had become a wasteland where jackals, foxes and rabbits scavenged for food. The kingdom of God on earth. This is a town, according to Psalm 58, that was poetically described as the joy of the whole earth. Great is Jehovah, Greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. And yet here, a few centuries later, Jeremiah the prophet laments in this way. All that pass by clap their hands at thee. They hiss and wag their head at the daughter of Jerusalem, saying, Is this the city that men called the perfection of beauty? The joy of the whole earth. All your enemies have opened their mouth wide against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth. They say we have swallowed her up. And yet, the Bible regards what happens in and around Jerusalem as of supreme importance to the God who created this massive universe. So the Bible, which we honour, do we not, as the revelation of God's truth has devoted huge amounts of its contents to Israel and Jerusalem, from 1 Samuel to Malachi. In the last book of the Old Testament, there's a promise that the true and living God would one day return to Jerusalem and its temple. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly return to his temple. Now, the incredible reason, I'd like to suggest to you, the incredible reason for the importance that's being placed on the history of this tiny little city is that it's a, a microcosm, a tiny little picture of the big thing that God is doing and will do with his universe. Some years ago, I don't know if you remember these devices, but I can't even remember what they were called. 
But some years ago, there was a device that everyone bought and none of us used. It was a drawing implement. We bought it for our kids for Christmas. At one end was a pointer with which you could trace a picture. And at the other end, magnified by a kind of system of levers and pulleys, was a pencil that magnified the thing you were tracing. And it was great if you were an octopus. <laughs> but it was impossible to use. So it died out as quickly as it came. Now something like that is going on here in, in Nehemiah. Uh, um, this little stuff that's going on with this little city and its little temple, uh, in this little uh, thing as big as Yorkshire, this little thing is magnified later on in the scriptures to show us what God is doing with the entire universe eternally. Now as we've been saying, Nehemiah was one of the exiles to the foreign land and he was raised up by the living God to respond to hearing about the dreadful state of Jerusalem. He was deeply grieved. You remember that from an earlier message. He was deeply grieved. He secured the permission of the great emperor to return and restore the city of his fathers. He was granted supplies and security. One of the most challenging church um, restitutions in the history of the world. Well, here he comes. We saw in chapters 4 and 5, I trust, I've not heard it, we were away on the high seas, uh, but in chapters 4 and 5 the work is difficult because there are enemies coming from outside and there are enemies being raised up inside amongst the people uh, of the Lord. And the work of God is going to have to face these twin challenges and we find them again in chapters 6 and 7. In the last two chapters... The, the focus of the enemies was on discouraging the workforce. But here in chapters 6 and 7, the emphasis is on discouraging the leader, Nehemiah. If you want to destroy an organisation, attack its leader. If you want to demoralise a megachurch, seduce the pastor into an idolatrous lust for sex, money or power. Go for the head. And that's what's happening here in, in chapters 6 and 7. I won't get through it all, of course, but uh, I'll be trying to mention some of the points that I think, and I'd like to announce with some pride that I have four points. <laughs> Unlike my son. Number one, the deployment of undercover intentions. Look at verses 1 to 5. The deployment of undercover intentions. There's a little trinity of evil persons here, and I've got to say that Dave read the passage extremely well, and his pronunciation was spot on, although I have to say I know no Hebrew whatsoever. Uh, he could have been making it up for all I know, but it was great, sounded fantastic. There's a little trinity of evil persons in verse 1. They're disturbed that the walls of Jerusalem are well nigh finished. Apart from the hanging of the gates, it's all done. And it's been done in record time. And they issue a call to Nehemiah to join them for a summit meeting in the neutral territory of Sidonia. And they persist in this tactic four times. Back and forth, the letters, the letters go. I, I prepared my message from the English Standard Version. So what they say is, come, let's meet together in the town of Hekephirim, in the plain of Ono. Name of the town is... a. Uh, 
refers to a young lion. It's the town of the young lion. And it's called Ono. And Nehemiah says, oh no, I'm not going to do this. Sorry, verse 2. You want to go to Ono? Oh no. He has two reasons for refusing this invitation to establish peace by discussion and possible treaty. First, he knows that they intend to inflict harm upon him. And secondly, he will not allow himself to be distracted from the most important work of his life. I am doing, he says in verse 2, I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. So, Nehemiah, this leader, does show himself here wonderfully to be a man who can read people and he can also retain his priorities. It reminds me a little bit, does it remind you a little bit of the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness? It's the offer of a shortcut, a way to an easier life. Instead of toiling at the defences of this city, instead of worrying whether the wall is going to be enough to secure the prosperity and, and security of Jerusalem, instead he could make peace over a meal. Come and have dinner and we can sort this stuff out between us. There's an easier way. Come and chat. We can get this done. Instead of toiling in the sun on the walls, you could come and feast in Liontown and make a treaty. Surely that's a better way of doing business. Nehemiah sees through it. He reads people. Verse 2, he knows that they intend to do him harm. And he resists. This is the important thing. He resists the temptation to alter his God-given priorities. God called me to rebuild the walls of this city called by his name. That's my priority. I will not be distracted from it by persistent invitations to try something less demanding. And anyway, the enemy who would distract me from my primary God-given task only intends to harm me. That's what he does, the enemy. He'd be doing it with some of you even in your life at this time. The tempter came to Jesus in his humanity and invited him to turn stones into bread. He invited him to come and bow down to him. Take an easier path. Throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple and before the eyes of multitudes and let the angels catch you. And then you'll be adored as the great miraculous maker. Take an easier path. You could accomplish the same objectives by an easier route. There'll be less hardship. There'll be less suffering. There will be less brokenness. But the Lord Jesus was called and sent to bring his people to a place of reconciliation to God and he can only do it by suffering death on the cross and rising from the dead. He was called to restore the creation to its former beauty and true glory and he can only do that by suffering and he will not be distracted from the work. There are no shortcuts, my friends, to building the kingdom of God. There are no shortcuts to building a church plant in Epsom. So whenever the suggestion comes to your mind that you could abandon the priorities of the kingdom of God and take, make life easier, watch out. The call to greater comfort, the call to less sweat and less toil and less need to endure and less commitment and less sacrifice and less brokenness is a call to enable the enemy of your soul to harm you. I'm 73, 
I've just finished a very heavy year as the interim pastor of a nearby church, which <laughs> some of you may have heard about. <laughs> and there is in my heart a call that take things easy now. You know, you've earned it. Take it. Take life a bit easier. And people are advising me to do that. Take life easy. Same thing will happen to you from time to time. There's always going to be a subtle invitation, maybe persistent, to be part of the rebuilding of the kingdom of God, but just do it, make it easy for yourself. It's the voice of the enemy. And in the end, it will harm you. It will harm you. The deployment of undercover intentions. Secondly, the deployment of slanderous accusations, verses 5 to 9. <coughs> then the fifth time Sanballat sent his assistant to me with the same message, and in his hand <laughs> was an unsealed letter. One of the wonderful God-given resources on which Nehemiah relied, humanly speaking, was the favour of the great king Artaxerxes of Persia, one of the most powerful men in the world at that time. The goodwill of the king had been an answer to prayer. Remember that? And the king had provided materials for the rebuilding of the city and he'd given letters of protection for Nehemiah and those who went with him. Now Sanballat pulls a fast one here. He sends the fifth letter, verse 5, in the form of an open letter. This is an early example of WikiLeaks. <laughs> he wants everyone to know what are the contents of this epistle? He wants people to be able to open it and read it and spread the news around. The accusation is about as damaging as it could be. He wants the news to reach King Artaxerxes. He insinuates that the Jews led by Nehemiah are building the city walls because they want to rebel against Artaxerxes' rule. One of the most difficult matters to handle in relationships is the ascription of false motives. The deployment of slanderous accusations, false motives. You're doing this? <laughs> You're doing this because you want to achieve that. You said that your motive is to honour Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. Your motive actually is you want power for yourself. That's why you're doing this. You want to be king. You want to defy the emperor and set yourself up in a place of prominence. Your motive is pride. It's a very difficult thing to contend with, isn't it? The ascription of false motives. You can't take your motives out and show them to somebody. It's kind of inward. It's in your mind and it's in your heart. When I went in 1986, I went to the membership in Chessington with a proposal to avoid appoint the notorious Trevor Archer as associate pastor. I was accused vociferously in public at uh, 10 past 11 on a Sunday morning as I was about to start the morning service. I was accused publicly and vociferously of wanting to exercise my personal laziness in order to get someone else to do the work for me. False motives. And I taught on the value and biblical centrality of eldership in the local church in a 
in the church in Buckinghamshire where I was the pastor, I was accused by my church secretary of wanting, of being like all other little men in the history of the world. And he mentioned Hitler and Napoleon in particular. <laughs> he, I just wanted to gather a bunch of yes-men around me and consolidate power, power for my own purposes. That's your motivation. You don't want to teach the Bible's um, descriptions of eldership. You want power yourself. How do you disprove accusations about your motives? They're in your heart and mind. One of the most insidious and powerful tactics of our enemy, Satan, is to attack our motives through the mouths of other people. You're doing this because I don't know that you noticed it in the reading, but there's a, a repetition of a word in this chapter which is important. You, you see it in verse 9. It's the word frighten or intimidate. It occurs several times in this chapter. Uh, the purpose of these accusations, the purpose of this opposition, <coughs> is to try and stop Nehemiah doing his job because he's scared of the consequences. And he's fed up of the opposition. He simply does three things. He discerns their strategy. He defends his reputation. He calls out to God in a simple and direct prayer. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Sometimes you have to leave your reputation in the hands of the Lord. As did Jesus when he was reviled. Reviled not again, but entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. The deployment of slanderous accusations. Acknowledge them. Do what you can humbly in your brokenness to defend your reputation and then leave everything in the hands of God. The deployment of slanderous accusations. And then the other, the next thing that the enemy does is the deployment of insincere colleagues, verses 10 to 14. The deployment of insincere colleagues. This is really sad in the life of the church. But there will be times when you are undermined, not by the, the beer-drinking world out there, but by the wine-drinking people who sit around the Lord's table with you. And uh, this is what happens here in verses 10 to 14. One of the best books I've read on church leadership is by the American pastor Larry Osborne, and he's describing the importance of building a strong leadership in the local church. That will be one of the, the great ongoing challenges facing Emmanuel Epsom. How do we build and continue to build a strong leadership in the local church and prepare men to become our future leaders? One of his strong points is called guarding the gate. When it comes to colleagues on the eldership of the church, it's far better to guard the gate than to get, try to get rid of the wrong man having appointed him. He says this, But worst of all, once a toxic elder has a seat on the bus, it can take an act of God to get him off. <laughs> the best time to remove a problem player is before they have a place on the team. Hey, Horace, I didn't notice you were here. <laughs> I, I wasn't thinking about you, brother. You've, been, you've always been a great elder. 
there's, there's a man on the team, verse 10, he's called Shemaiah. He, he appears to want to protect Nehemiah from assassination attempts. He invites the governor to go with him to the temple so they can lock the doors and be safe. He says, verse 10, they are coming to kill you by night. He claims to have knowledge of the plot by, by prophecy from the Lord. God has told me, you've got to do this. God has clearly revealed it to me. But it's actually... It's a, an evil attempt to discredit Nehemiah because once he steps into the temple where he has no place, he will have broken the law of God, he will be discredited and he will be seen to be a coward. People will use, sadly, spiritual reasons to harm the Lord's servants sometimes. Oh, I had a word from the Lord. Sorry, I didn't mean to speak it in Welsh. <laughs> I don't know what got into me there. I had a word from the Lord. I prayed about this and I felt I should say, you are a monkey's uncle. I don't know what it is. Some of the most painful times of my life have been when people have come to me and criticised me and the eldership and the leadership for wanting to implement certain things in the life of the church I've served and the great reason why they have come in this way and with this tone of voice, I have prayed about this. As if that justifies everything and anything. And Nehemiah in some way, I don't know how, discerns that Shemaiah is on the side of the enemy. He's pretending to care for his boss, but he's actually secretly aiming to destroy him. And Nehemiah is allowed to see what is going on. I understood, he says in verse 12, and saw that God had not sent him. He's in it for selfish reasons. He's a hireling. He wants to what? Frighten or intimidate me. He wants to discredit me. To show me a timid, law-breaking man who hides behind temple doors instead of being a man of courage. What does Nehemiah do? He does something that we don't do in our politically correct age. He takes the names of these false colleagues to God and he asks the Lord to deal with them. We're often keen to ask God to remember our friends who've got serious illnesses and family issues and family problems Sometimes you have to ask God to remember those people who want to diminish and discredit you in the eyes of the church or your place of work. I'm just reading at the moment the, the biography, one biography of John Knox, the great Scottish reformers. His prayers make your hair stand on end. I don't know if I've got time to read one of them from my Kindle. <laughs> Repress the pride of these bloodthirsty tyrants. Consume them in thine anger according to the reproach which they have laid against thy holy name. Pour forth thy vengeance upon them and let our eyes behold the blood of thy saints required of their hands. Delay not thy vengeance, O Lord, but let death devour them in haste. Let the earth swallow them up and let them go down to hell. We don't tend to pray like that. <laughs> But I, I think it's, it's biblical when people are harming the church of God and you're sure that they're harming the church of God to pray that God would deal with them. The deployment of insincere colleagues. And I close with this very briefly for the delightful restoration 
of the city of God. This is chapter, verse 15 of chapter 6 to verse 73 of chapter 7. Okay. So this is my last point, and I'm dealing with verse 15 of chapter 6 to verse 73 of chapter 7. On or around October the 27th, anybody got October 27th as a birthday? No. On or around October 27th, 400 years or so before the birth of Jesus, the walls are finished. They've been in ruins for 150 years. They were restored in two months. Those walls were a symbol of protection and safety. They might have been a fragile symbol. Um, they rebuilt these walls out of poor material, the old damaged stones that had been burned, they restored the walls. They might have been a fragile symbol, but the restoration was a sign that God who'd given his people to tragedy because they'd abandoned him, was restoring his protection for them. The walls were finished. There's a refrain in one of our hymns, we're going to sing it in a few minutes' time, there's a refrain that catches the sense of it. With salvation's walls surrounded, thou mayest smile at all thy foes. The reactions are wonderful. The enemies of God's people, verse 16 of chapter 6, they are discomforted. The Lord's people are overjoyed and celebrate. The surrounding culture recognises that the Lord is in his church and that this thing could only have happened with the help of the divine hand. It's an interesting dynamic. Persia, Persia is the big boy in world politics and economics at this time. It's the golden age of the Persian Empire after the Babylonian and the Assyrian empires had passed away in reverse order. But the celebrations here reflect the priority of the God of the Bible. The walls of this little mangled city were restored and that was a cause for eternal singing. No matter what's going on in the world, no matter which empire at the moment is flexing its political, its military and its economic muscles, the eyes of the Lord are upon the well-being of his church and upon the building up of local churches. That's where his eye is upon. We need to remember that. The media wants us to focus on Brexit, Putin, the American presidential elections, the, the FTSE 100, uh, the Wall Street. And of course those things matter. But the most important thing in the universe is the building of the kingdom of God. There are loads of names included in these chapters up to verse 73 of chapter 7. Loads of names. These are the people who returned to Judah to rebuild God's city. The names are put down in the role of citizenship. They came back. They left the world city. They left the prosperity. They made this dangerous and arduous journey. They've, they've, they've sweated their, their backs off in order to restore these walls in two months. And their names are here. The names of the people who sacrificially gave themselves to the building of the kingdom of God. That's what ultimately matters. Every time a name is added to the role of people reconciled to God through the death of the Lord Jesus, celebrations are held in heaven. There will be no celebrations in heaven, whether it's Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. But if one of them would be saved by the grace of God, then there would be 
celebrations in the glory. The things you can see around you are passing away. The eternal city lasts. The day will come when the new Jerusalem will descend from heaven like a lovely bride ready for her wedding. And she will live eternally in a new creation with her husband, the Lord Jesus. Those are the ultimate <coughs> realities that will last. Everything else around us will fade away. Everything that so many of us think are more important than anything else will soon be gone. The city of God remaineth. One of the great encouragements of Nehemiah is to think kingdomly. A man leaves the security of comfort and wealth, one of the most important civil service positions in the great empire of Persia. He leaves it all to devote himself to the building of God's kingdom. He takes risks, he endures discomfort, he makes sacrifices, he lives with integrity, he endures opposition, and all for the kingdom. And we have a new and better city. We have a new and better Nehemiah, who in his death and resurrection laid the foundation and built the walls of the eternal Jerusalem. The unique foundation that's been laid is Jesus and his finished work. So let's be men and women like Nehemiah who think and act kingdomly.